The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Very Loose Women. You're listening to Very Loose Women, Resonance's self-proclaimed premier chat show on Resonance 104.4 FM. So you just heard uh, Grimes' song Rosa because today we're going to be talking with author Kate Evans speaking about her book on Rosa Luxemburg. First off, a little reminder on Resonance's annual fundraising week. Please go to the Resonance website to donate to support the radio station or attend our Very Loose Women fundraising event. So for the third time now, we'll be hosting a show in the pub. Um, The pub in question is the King's Arms on Newcomen Street near London Bridge in London. So if you live in these parts, please come along and bring stories of dating disasters with you. It's on the 18th of January at 7pm. It's on the 18th of February. (laughs) It's on the 18th of February because the 18th of January doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) And we'll be theming the show around dating just in time for you to uh, re-state your Valentine's Day horror story. So I'm Leonore and in the studio with me is Very Loose Women co-presenter Emma. Hello. Hi. And our special guest for today, Kate Evans. Hi, Kate. Hello. So we're here kind of to talk about your book, Red Rosa, your graphic novel, Mm -hmm. I should say. Um, On the blurb a bit, you're described as an artist, a writer, and an activist. Can you start by telling us, what do you do? Oh, now that puts me on the spot. Mainly the school run, actually, when it comes down to it. In or not in your pyjamas, as I hear is a current debate. Oh, definitely. Well, I I tend to wear, like, skiing salopettes the whole winter through. I don't really peel them off much, so I think that counts as still wearing my duvet. I've been a cartoonist for the last 20 years. I started out as an activist at the Newbury Bypass during the mid-90s doing activism against the Criminal Justice Act. I have written a book about comic book, graphic novel, if you want to call it, comic books, straightforward, about climate change called Funny Weather We're Having at the Moment, Isn't It Dear? Everything You Didn't Want to Know About Climate Change But Probably Should Find Out. I've written a book about roads protesting called Cops, which is massively out of print and is like this rare collector's item now. Um, I've written Britain's best-selling breastfeeding book, which is quite hard to say, which is called The Food of Love. And I just finished, uh, last year I finished a book about um, fertility, pregnancy and birth. So how to get pregnant and then what to do when you are pregnant, which is like a choose your own adventure book. So where you can like flick to page 65 or you know turn to the cesarean section if you need it and then after a very long-winded introduction i've uh, written um rosa luxemburg red rosa the graphic biography of rosa luxemburg which is just out from verso and all about rosa luxemburg who is a seriously inspiring loose woman so for those of us who don't know can you explain a bit about who rosa luxemburg is for those of us who don't know that totally included me at the point when i said yes i'll write a graphic biography of rosa luxemburg I sort of had this vague idea that she's a groovy person, like I'd heard her name like Emma Goldman and like Bakunin, like someone I should probably read at some point. But um, with a little theory light on my activism in the 90s, because basically we spent all our time living in trees and going to free parties. So we didn't really spend much time learning the history of revolutionary socialism. So I agreed to do the project and then I googled who she was and she is just seriously inspiring. She... You have to picture her, really. Um, 
she had like a mullet in the 18 in 1894 which I think that's is, ahead of her time yeah yeah massively ahead <laughs> of her time she looked like a german squatter girl um and she wrote economic theory groundbreaking economic theory explaining about the link between the military industrial complex and capitalism and globalization good 50 years before the words military and com industrial complex and globalization had been invented she had an incredible theoretical grasp of capitalism and was unfailingly opposed to it as well as that she was tiny she was jewish she was a refugee she was born in 1871 she was a woman obviously at a time when people are not expected to do anything as a woman other than procreate she went to university in switzerland the only country in europe which would allow women to graduate from university and she went on to become an editor a journalist and a lecturer in turn she wrote abstract books of economic theory which have been overlooked through the centuries because of her gender and oh, she was seriously badass and kept having lovers who were 14 years younger than her um, how did you go about writing the book? It's all based on primary source materials. So I have the photos of, of her and as many photos that I have of places that she was at. I started with her letters. Um, Verso's published a book of her letters, which is it's a good read. It's really interesting. She's really vibrant and sparkly. She's just got incredible letter writing skills. And some of them are very, very poetic. So I knew as, re as soon as I'd read her letters that we had a lovely story to tell there but then um i had i then i read all her theory i read her, her work which it's quite hard to do actually because it's a little bit like revolutionary socialists in the, in the 19th century were paid by the word i went through and i found the vein the bare bones and the really good quotes of what she'd done and then constructed comments that explain what she's about and where she's coming from i start off with marx's das kapital because you have to understand that to understand capitalism and to understand where her critiques and the way that she furthered Marx's work. So I have like an eight page sequence where I explain the whole of Das Kapital as a conversation at the dinner table between Rosa and her brother. Yeah, and there's like faces and spoons. It's quite bizarre, isn't it? And yeah. then she like destroys a piece of bread. Yeah, it well, was... the bread is a factory. Yeah. yeah. Basically, I explain capitalism using spoons, salt and celery. I like to create a narrative to explain a, a theoretical idea and to use lots of visual metaphors wherever possible. Take the theory and explain the theory, but do it in comic book form. I guess like that kind of clarity and way of explaining things, like is that... You know, who's it aimed for? Who's a book aimed at? Oh, you... everyone always thinks to me, who's your market? I write comics because I like comics. And if it makes me laugh, I figure it's going to be make it's going to attract somebody else. And if I think it's well drawn, well, hopefully somebody else does, too. My books always cross genres, which doesn't help for getting like recognition for them, if you like. Like you write a breastfeeding book with comics in, and then people are like, what shelf do I put that on in the bookshelf mm. in the bookshop and um, in Waterstones you're actually in the politics like Marxist um, section oh good and then you were also in the comic section this so is they'd... where I want to be yeah both. so I'm really pleased to see that that's come through although it was gruelling writing this book and it was incredibly hard work it was really rewarding because she's such an amazing amazing subject and her words are so powerful I mean when it came to illustrating um, Luxembourg's famous anti-war pamphlet the unius pamphlet i couldn't actually add illustrations to that piece of writing because it is so excoriatingly powerful that there wasn't 
I was like, I tried to sketch a few pictures to go alongside it. And I was like, no, actually, the pictures that she paints in your mind are more powerful than anything I could draw on the paper. As you were drawing it, did you feel like you were judging her at all? Or if not judging, then identifying? Oh, both. Um, I mean, the good thing about creating your own graphic biography and also having really limited space to do it is that I get to emphasise the parts of her character that I approve of or that that I can draw out easily I mean it's not a completely flattering portrait I do point out that she has servants and I do in the note footnotes give some of her particularly like more weirdly classist um, sentiments because I think the class divide was very strong back then and I think that as an independent woman she had to be very careful to separate herself from anyone who made the living in a sex trade or anyone who was in any way not reputable and so to do that she emphasized she, she tried to be a member of the upper class wherever possible that was the only way that her ideas could be taken seriously there's a frame where she's saying something marxist to her friend and the maid is raising their eyes. Oh, they're oh. raising a toast to the rev- 20th, the 20th century. They're, they're, it's the New Year's Eve, uh, you know, 1900, and they're all saying, to the revolution, and I have a, a maid carrying a heavy tray of champagne, <laughs> rolling her eyes in the foreground. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I could, could, I could emphasise parts of her character that I really like, and I could maybe gloss over a bit things because everyone is going to be more complicated than you can put aside in 179 pages of artwork you know that everyone's a little bit more complex than that but so many of her words are so good it's so much fun so i mean writing to her lover luxembourg writes it's time for me to take you in my claws i must terrorize you completely i have the right to do this because i'm 10 times better than you and how many victorian heroines say something like that and there's her actual... That's yeah, there's her actual writing. That's amazing. If you look in the back of the book, I, I quote the entire letter because it's just so good. I'm going to take you in my claws so sharply that it will make you squeal. You'll see. I will terrorise you completely. You'll have to submit. You will have to give in and bow down. That is the condition for our living together further. I must break you, grind the sharp edges off your horns or else I can't continue with you. I love her. I love. So was she like quite into BDSM type relationship? No, no. Although she does say, "I'm already standing here with a carpet beater in my hand, and as soon as I arrive, I'm going to start beating the dust out of you." I believe that's metaphorical, not literal. But well, <laughs> who can say? But that's lovely. That's cool. He's a, he's a just he's just a funny bloke who's having problems accessing her, his emotions, and and she is just really not up for that. <laughs> <laughs> but when you when you draw her naked, there's like. I felt that there was quite a strong choice to portray her in a certain way. Like, she's very uh, kind of proud when she's naked. And there are a lot of... It might just be because there's very intimate scenes that you're drawing. But, for example, the leg hair, which from the frame, from that distance, you wouldn't possibly see it. Oh, yes, you you would. I think women generally do have hairy legs. We just tend not to see it these days. I deliberately draw body hair because I can... And because I think it's important for people to see that. And because it wouldn't be accurate to not as well. Mm. But her sexuality was really important for her. And it's been lovely to be able to explore that in such an maybe an unexpected context. You know, shock Mm. horror. A hundred years ago, people still had sex. Mm. But it was very important to her. Um, She was able to choose to have relationships with 
multiple lovers and that is an incredible freedom. I mean, I do discuss the fact that we don't know how she would have managed to use contraception, but I think she must have done. It wouldn't have been something she could have afforded to have lost, left to chance. Just saying, just hearing that about, you know, how was she kind of perceived and received at the time then? Like, was it kind of thought of as kind of, I don't know, quite shocking that she had all these lovers? Or, like, do you know what, what was her... What scene was she in, maybe? Oh, well, it was quite an interesting scene in that I've subsequently found out that her friend, Louise Kautsky, who's known for being married to Karl Kautsky, was also simultaneously having a romance with Karl Kautsky's brother and living in an apartment building with the two of them on different floors of the same block of flats. I mean, we think the 60s in London was swinging. I think we don't really have a clue what was happening in Kaiserreich Berlin. But um, there was also an element to which people would have been very, very private about things. I mean, it wasn't such a confessional open time. It was actually illegal to have sex in Germany outside marriage at that time. And it was also impossible for a single woman to rent um, an apartment or to rent property. So she was quite dependent on men as well in order to have her independent lifestyle. But she still managed to do that. At one point, you turn up in the comic book saying... With something like... um, Forgive the authorial intrusion into the narrative. That's it. But how relevant is this today? Exactly. And then you basically answer the question, it's very relevant. Um, so, So I could feel your own political perspective coming in. Well, that was a point that needed to be made because um, in Luxembourg, problem that she's seeking to address in the accumulation of capital, which is her masterwork, is how capitalism can exist as a closed system. So she's, she's, she's visualising the baseline economics of capitalism as like these people consume, well, these people produce and these people take the profit. So you've got you're the workers, you've got capitalists making the money out of it. And what she points out is that within the closed system of capitalism, there is nowhere for that money to go. You can't sell the products of capitalism back to the workers because they have to have as little money as possible in order to be able to survive. And the capitalists themselves can't spend the profit because that's not the way capitalism works. You have to keep the money growing all the time. And so she's like, how does capitalism even exist? Now, this is our perception of this has changed in the modern era because we have a huge amount of consumerism. We have a massive consumerist middle class and who is continuously buying stuff that we then have to replace and throw away. But I wanted to point out that like Luxembourg proposition is still valid because within capitalism, this great big middle class is still only getting its money from capitalism. Luxembourg's genius is to realise it's mathematically impossible for capitalism to exist without feeding off other strata, without feeding off the value added by the exploitation of the environment and the natural world, and by feeding off non-capitalist strata of society. In Luxembourg's time, that was done through empire. It was all about the geographical expansion of capitalism around the globe. And she writes incredibly poignantly in the Introduction to Political Economy about the ways in which Caribbean indigenous people have been wiped out, um, like the massacres done by the Spanish and Australians and the Germans in West Africa. So she, she feels very passionately about that these days as well we can use we can see primary accumulation occurring within capitalism so anywhere there is a non-capitalist strata of society like the nhs for example you can see capitalism moving into that so that's the way you can see capitalism spreading and it's really 
really important the way that she gave that a mathematical economic grounding. I mean, she's thinking in abstract economic terms, which they didn't even have words for yet. They didn't have uh, the words like gross domestic product. They, they didn't have a lot of the economic tools that we now have. But she was able to think in terms that, you know, and, and to do this economic groundwork and to then extrapolate from that in a really interesting and coherent way. You also made that, that comic about Calais and you do volunteering in Calais and... I have done less a than a week okay. volunteering in Calais, but I'm going back in a fortnight, so um, I'll do a little bit more. It's it's hard. I've got kids. But do you feel your activism is fed into how you decided to uh, treat, in the, the kind of literary sense, Rosa? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, oh, particularly when you're discussing the events of the German Revolution, because you have this real attempt to seize power and to institute a socialist republic which then peters out in partly through its own lack of ambition and partly through disorganisation and I can really identify with that <laughs> those moments where they're all standing around in the Forvets building and they're like what should we do now uh, let's have a meeting uh, can we not have some dinner? Is there anything to eat? I mean, the practicalities of holding a building. I've been there, you know. I've overmatedly, I haven't had to repellent armed guards from behind rolls up rolls of newspaper print. You know, I haven't I haven't had to shoot back at anyone. But like, it's you know that group dynamic thing and the whole disorganisation. Yet the inspiration, the spontaneity. This this was Rose's big thing. She was a theorist of revolutions, and she developed a theory of spontaneity around her writings on the mass strike. And she was fascinated by how how opinions can shift and events can shift, and how the masses and the crowds can suddenly become powerful from having never been before. I think it's really inspiring to look at the lessons she drew. Um, from the 1905 Re- Russian Revolution and then see how it could be applied, say, to um, the uprising in Egypt, which also had a mass strike at its base. For Rosa Luxemburg, what is revolution? and like, What, what does she expect of it? it? She has an incredibly democratic view of revolution. I'll have to find you the quote. I think this is a killer if you want to talk about what Luxembourgism is. You know as well as I do, Leo... History is not making things easy for us. A bourgeois revolution could simply overthrow the official power and replace it with a couple of new men. But we must work from the bottom to the top. We can only come to power with the clear and explicit will of the great majority of the proletarian masses. She's like, revolution for her is everyone being up for it. So all her life she works to get the message to the masses and to write as inspiringly as she can on the most broad topics of things to to get the message out to the masses. But up for what? Um, yeah, no. When you start talking about her actual ideas of what's going to happen after the revolution and you also look at her critiques of what's happening in Russia, she's very prescient with what's going wrong in Russia. She's talking about the fact that Lenin, who's a friend of hers, um, has outlawed the freedom of the press. And she says her most um, famous quote, all that is wholesome and purifying and instructive in politics depends upon this. Freedom is always and exclusively freedom for those who think differently. So what she's up for is freedom in its truest sense. I think revolution for Rosa Luxemburg is just the opposite of capitalism. She can see what's wrong with capitalism. And the idea is, and it's quite a simplistic one, is that 
once all the workers realise that there's nothing in them for capitalism, then they will be in power. And so they did institute workers and soldiers councils um, immediately after the revolution in, in Germany, which ended the First World War. Interestingly, uh, Rosa Luxemburg wasn't allowed to join them because she was neither a worker nor a soldier. So, <laughs> so it was quite a confused picture that arrived out of that. And it's hard. I mean, they were of the opinion that that society moved in stages and that the next stage was industrialization and then the stage after that would be um would be this fairly utopian view of the world rising up in revolution. And of course that didn't happen. You had isolated pockets of revolution. You had Russia, you had Germany. The German revolution imploded under its own wimpiness. <laughs> <laughs> or in a way, in in terms of, you know, you had a parliamentary socialist party that just sold out big time really early on. Um, and the Russian Revolution was fighting, was being, the Russian was being invaded by white Russian forces and, and imperial forces from the outset, which wasn't a very conducive environment for a free, um, for a free association of working people to do anything progressive even if they were capable of it which i'm not don't know if they would have been your trotskyists are gonna hate me for this (laughs) so could you tell us a bit more about those cartoons you produce like where they appear and also like why is it that cartooning is kind of such a like long-standing form and popular form of kind of social and political like satire and commentary like why is it that cartoons cartoons yeah cartoons yeah, why, what, cartoons have persisted. You can draw out the humanity of people, and well, that's like what I like to try and do is draw out human relations between people in the cartoons that I draw. Um, I don't try and just give someone a big nose and big ears. I don't think that's where the humour genuinely lies. But you can also use um, imagery, invented conversations between people to draw out the underlying essence of what's going on i do political cartoons i stick them on twitter at cartoon kate if you want to follow me um i try and respond to news events and i'm kind of hopefully i mean the morning star take quite a lot of my cartoons um yeah watch this space if i can get any anywhere else threads the calais cartoon was printed the first five pages of it were printed in the independent and the whole piece was taken by new internationalist magazine so i yeah i but the thing is, I've never really been motivated by commercial decisions. I've always been motivated by the message that I want to get out there. And the next cartoon that I have to draw is inevitably never one that someone's commissioned. It's always just one that I really, really, really want to draw. <laughs> so I'm from France, partly, which is a country where graphic novels are just more of a thing, generally. Mm. Do you think that in the UK it's kind of heading that way like it's- it would be nice to think so i'm so bored of the assumption that comics for kids because none of the graphic novels that i've written have ever been aimed at children they are they've all got explicitly adult content and it's so boring some people going oh well that'd be nice for my kids i'm like no that would be nice to go and put in the toilet in the house of lords that's where I want my cartoons to be read. In the toilet is definitely where I'm aiming for, though. Why? Because everybody gets the chance to browse there, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, that's, everyone does go to the toilet. Yeah, I that's hope. a reflective place yeah. for a comic book. That's where everyone should hope their book should be. I've got two questions. My first is to do with comics that you read. Mm-hmm. You're, so you make comics. Are there any that you 
read or not necessarily that feed into your work but is there are there comics that you like I always try and avoid comics that directly feed into my work like when I was writing Rosa I had Joe Sacco's The Great War and I was like I can't look at it I can't look at it because I don't want to copy it <laughs> which I wouldn't going to anyway but you know so, um, and I also had uh, uh, Sharon Rudall's book uh, Dangerous Woman about Emma Goldman and again it's like I'm not going to go there I'm not going to go there I'll, I'll read it after it's finished so I so save them like treats oh what have I got at the moment oh Kate Beaton um, Roz Chast uh, Alison Bechdel Linda Barry Steve Bell um, they're all massively brilliant to my mind which I'm sure is wrong graphic novels do seem like a fairly recent phenomenon but when did you first get into it? Maybe both of you can answer this, actually. Like, when did you first get into graphic novels? Like, what was the first one you read? And you thought, like, this is amazing. I haven't seen anything like this before. I grew up with cartoonists rather than graphic novelists as my inspiration. So there was Posey Simmons and Steve Bell in The Guardian. And then I had um, Annie Lawson's cartoons and Jackie Fleming's cartoons. And I'd just buy little zines in Camden Market from Annie Lawson's stall. And I'd get J- Jackie Fleming's cartoon books and... I don't remember her name. Oh my God, she wrote Wonder Woman. She's called Kath Jackson. Kath Jackson. Okay, yeah. Oh my God, Kath Jackson's. I mean, she's 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 lost to the internet. We need to find her and resurrect her. Just beautiful cross hatchings and beautiful one frame comics about um, single frame. Like she's got the old lady leaving, uh, standing there putting massive long hairpins into her hair, saying, "Just leaving for my self defence class, dear." Mm-hmm. She's she so she was actually really really inspirational and I started just doodling in class and um, drawing caricatures of teacher to get a laugh from my friends like so you know I didn't I didn't really start off as a graphic novelist at all I certainly really liked Alison Bechdel's and Linda Barry's comics but I was already a published um, comic artist before I started really getting into graphic novels oh, for me it's I know the answer um, oh Asterix oh really yeah a French one um, I grew up. Um, and in all of the toilets I've ever lived in, <laughs> I don't live in. Toilets. Well, good, dude. There's good sound, reading in there. Sound, but sound in nice. all of the t- in all of the houses where there's been a toilet, like where my parents, my parents always, well, my dad always put all of the Peanuts comics that he bought, like in a market in New York in the seventies. And he's, they've just, he's got an enormous collection. So just Charlie Brown the whole way through, just loads and loads and loads of Charlie Brown. And then when I worked at the French Institute, all of the French ones. I, yeah. yeah, I loved Asterix. I lo- just used to look at the way that they draw the sea in Asterix and just go, oh. I didn't like a lot of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons on the telly when I was growing up, like Scooby-Doo and that, because I was really snobbishly didn't like the drawing. I was like, that's rubbish drawing. That's a rubbish plot line. So I was already critical of cartoons from the age of eight. But Scooby-Doo, it's always someone in a mask. I mean, it's always yeah, someone wearing a mask. what used to really annoy me is they'd be running somewhere and then they'd put the background along the back of them and then they'd run the same background along behind mm-hmm. them again just to save ink. And I'd be like, that is shoddy. <laughs> My last question, and don't answer if you don't want to, there's a page in Red Rosa which is how to be a revolutionary do you, socialist, yeah. yeah. Do you think you're a revolutionary socialist? Would you call Ooh. yourself that? My politics is based on the idea that, okay, radical change is very, very needed. And by radical change, I mean consistent um, overhaul of capitalism and dismantling of capitalism. I think revolutionary socialists have got a point when they say they can't see a way in which that would happen without revolution. 
On the other hand, uh, revolutions in historical experience seem to have uh, uh, seem to be precisely that. They seem to be a turning of a circle and returning to more or less the same place again. You can see a continuity between the czarist leaders of Russia and the um, and the political leaders of the so-called socialist movement that took over in, the, you know, in the 1950s to, to nowadays with Putin and his complete disdain for democracy again. So um, my my idea of dismantling capitalism is predicated on the building up of communities and instituting those into the heart of society no I don't have an answer about how we're going to achieve that I don't have a problem with someone having a revolution and I will go along with the ride if that's what's going on but I don't for me I think that change is change and every time somebody does something uncapitalist or somebody does something capitalist meaning doing something exploitative and doing something non-exploitative those are all part of a bigger picture I mean Within our lifetime, then change is going to come anyway because we are reaching the limits of economic growth. Unless, oh, did you want to ask another question? Oh, I just that was another question you, face. If you had any other upcoming projects that you wanted to talk about or plug something to our listeners, oh, I was just going to plug Red Rosa because it's a damn good read. Uh, and Consider it plug. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was two years of my life, guys. You know, do what people do: just sit down and read it all in a compulsive single sitting, and then tweet me about it. And say, I read it all in a single sitting, and I go, well, that was worth two years of my life. I just read that in an hour and a half. <laughs> you read it again. <laughs> I read it in two sittings. Did you? Did, yeah. you, did you cry? I didn't cry. Did you not Sorry. cry? Quite no. a lot of people cry. It's no. quite funny. Why didn't you cry? Because <laughs> I'm a heartless, soulless person. I, I was practically crying when <laughs> I drew the end. It's so sad. It doesn't have a happy ending, everyone. She doesn't manage to overthrow world capitalism and save us from the horrors of the Spoiler. 20th century. Did you not? Had you not worked that out? <laughs> Um, so anyway, here's Jack Brell, who has his own socialist convictions, uh, with a song called Rosa. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at VLW Radio, Emma. And please come to our show in the pub. <laughs> yeah, uh, 18th of February in the King's Arms on Newcomen Street at 7pm. Um, listen to us on Acast, iTunes, um, and here's Jack Brell. Thanks for listening. Thank you for coming on our show. C'est le plus vieux tango du monde Celui que les têtes blondes Annonnent comme une ronde En apprenant leur latin C'est le tango du collège Qui prend les rêves au piège Et donc...